Well, good afternoon or good morning to folks on the West Coast. Uh, I'm BK. I'm the director of the Park Maintenance Institute. And today we're going to be hitting on what seems like some hot topics today. There's been a, a lot of discussion and some need to educate folks around playgrounds, uh, specifically playground owners and people that manage playgrounds on their properties. And we're going to be talking in an important topic of safety considerations. Uh, we're going to highlight some seasonal maintenance tasks and other kind of considerations specifically on surfacing. Uh, and we're also going to be including accessibility uh, topics while we're planning and developing and also discussing, you know, so what are some of the implications after the planning and development and installation occurs. Um, so for this session of Shop Talk, we've invited Kevin Umbright. He's the VP and District Sales Representative from Recreation Resource USA. Uh, he's here to share his expertise regarding resilient playground safety surfaces. Uh, you guys are going to be learning the pros and cons of each type of safety surface, talk about the costs and some of the considerations of ongoing maintenance issues. So our learning objectives are for today are to learn about each type of playground surface. Uh, we're gonna learn about the costs associated with each type of surface. And then we're gonna be provided with details about why it is important to maintain your playground safety surfaces. So a little bit about Kevin. Uh, Kevin started in the park and playground business in 2013 after coming from a background as a general manager of a small manufacturing firm, uh, and then a few years supporting mission-critical database software and tech business. His background translates well to the world of playgrounds, where manufacturing and continuous uptime, or maintenance, is needed, considered every day. Kevin resides in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania. He enjoys cooking, music, and hiking the beautiful trails of Pennsylvania. Uh, he and his wife, Heather, have two in-house playground uh, testers, ages five and three, uh, and they love traveling to local playgrounds that daddy has built for them. So without further ado, I'm gonna hand things off to Kevin. Thanks, BK. And I hope that um, everybody is enjoying some nice spring weather wherever they are around the United States. Um, and again, I'm Kevin, Recreation Resource USA is my business. We're based here in Pennsylvania area. And um, so I wanted to focus on the topics of safety surfacing. If I'm hitting on something that is Pennsylvania centric, I do apologize. Um, I know that surfacing uh, is something that's required for everybody across the United States but I may cite some things that are more specific to Pennsylvania. Uh, I do have to tip my hat. There was a, uh, a pro tip that came out from an attendee about some issues in other states, um, uh, Massachusetts, and I think it was Iowa perhaps, but um, uh, thank you for that tip. And it's something that is unique in this world where um, when I see my counterparts that do the same sort of thing across the country, we have conversations about it. Uh, but usually I know a bit about the, where the area is where I work here in Pennsylvania, Delaware, and down in West Virginia, um, and a little bit in the surrounding states as well. But 
Uh, I'm going to move ahead here and uh, we'll take a look at some of the things we're doing today. Um, I'm going to look at some guidelines and standards, and I'll probably breeze through a little bit of the first part um, about definitions and things like that, and then really get to the surfacing types, considerations, testing, what makes an unsafe playground, and uh, sort of that final uh, considerations and summary. Boom, there's a huge amount of standards that are out there that we follow uh, as we look at public playgrounds. Um, of course, our sort of Bible is the CPSC production, uh, publication 325, which was put out by the United States government over the years of uh, managing product safety in public playgrounds. And of course, then with manufacturers uh, and also some states even get into legislation using these ASTM standards. Uh, there's a whole bunch of them. Uh, the ones that are specific to us today are F1292, the standard for impact attenuation of surfacing materials within the use zone of playground equipment. Uh, of course, 1951 is another one that's very important, the determination of accessibility of these surfaces. Uh, there are some others as well that are specific to poured in place playground surfacing or engineered wood fiber or loose fill rubber, for example. And then of course, the one that is the um, very, very important one as well is the Department of Justice, DOJ 2010 ADA standard for accessible design. Uh, that one is a federal law. Uh, ADA law, of course, came in in 1992 and is something that is uh, used for access uh, uh, universally um, to not just buildings or playgrounds, but everything that we do in our lives. Uh, it's a pretty cool thing because, you know, we wouldn't have those uh, turndowns necessarily at the corners of streets if it wasn't for the ADA. Um, it, so it affects all of our lives in some way, shape, or form, and it's very important. Uh, CPSC guidelines are not for some things like uh, amusement park equipment, fitness and sports, although the, there are fitness standards that have been developed um, under ASTM in that previous slide. Uh, art and museum sculptures, water facilities, and home play equipment, for example. Um, 1487 is the playground equipment, but this is important because this dictates that uh, products or materials that are installed outside of the equipment use zone, like benches, tables, independent shades, borders, etc., are not considered play equipment. Everything else is and applies to our uh, use of safety surfacing. So some things that we look at then um, related to play equipment, uh, and I'm gonna jump, like I said, a little bit, is uh, on a public playground, um, we have uh, equipment that's in commercial, like childcare facilities, so non-residentials, uh, institutions, uh, cities, uh, so state and community maintained parks, um, HOAs and developments, other recreational areas, and. Um, areas of public use, that's the sort of catch-all. Um, and that's for ages six months through 12 years uh, is the official definition for a public playground. It's something that encompasses all of those things. Um, a designated play surface is an elevated surface for standing, walking, crawling, sitting, or climbing, or a flat surface wider than two inches wide, two inches long, having an angle less than 30 degrees from horizontal. So under that definition, 
the top of this post cap would be a designated play surface. And that's why we don't have square post caps any longer or flat post caps. They're all typically rounded at the top to avoid that part of the standard so that the platform or the slide you know, area would be the um, play surface. That's the highest point. Uh, fall height, again, this will translate to the requirements for safety surfacing. It's a vertical distance between the highest designated play surface and the protective surface beneath it. Um, so usually that's an uh, even number of feet, or sorry, that one is not typically even number of feet. That one is usually going to be a you know eight foot two or uh, nine foot three or something like that. It's the critical height uh, that we issue in a uh, even feet, and this is a fall height below which a life-threatening head injury would not be expected to occur. And this is in a uh, uh, even foot five, six, seven. You round up. Um, and the values for HIC and GMAX are 1,000 or less, uh, uh, sorry, it should be less than 1,000. And HICS is going to be less than 200. I'll get into those definitions a little bit, but you can see there's a tester on the right side of the screen there on doing a fall height test to verify critical fall height. Use zone. A use zone is the surface around or under a piece of equipment upon which a child might fall or jump off of if you were me back growing up uh, with improper use. But uh, uh, generally it's that six foot bubble around every piece of equipment. Uh, swings are a little bit different. They're twice the height of the pivot point to the front and twice the height of the pivot point to the rear. Generally the beam heights are eight foot now, so you're going to have 16 to the front, 16 to the back, total of 32. But this shows where protective safety surfacing is required. You can make it into that shape exactly as shown in the top right there with that little bubble, or you can be uh, rounded off a little bit and make it a little smoother, or put a big rectangle around it, whatever you want to do. But so long as you cover six feet out from the edges, then you're covered on use stone. And of course, what's the importance of a safe playground? It may be the law in some cases. Uh, some states have taken bits and pieces of CPSC 325 and ASTM standards um, and actually legislated them. Uh, typically, they're just a voluntary guideline that you're supposed to uh, follow. And of course, DOJ mandates the compliance with ADA law. Um, Obviously, the importance continues on and uh, you have liabilities. So, of course, there are, unfortunately are death or injuries from uh, play on playgrounds. Uh, of course, you might have lawsuits then as a result. What is your public perception? When somebody walks up to a playground, it doesn't look safe. And same with reputation. Uh, people do talk, of course, and they share their experiences at parks. And I do have something from, as I mentioned, with the hat tip to a uh, uh, an attendee that I'll jump into in a little bit. But of course, the most important part of it is it's, it's all about the kids and having a safe place for kids to take calculated risks. Jumping through a couple of statistics real quick, between 09 and 14, they were, there was uh, reports of 1.46 million incidents associated with playground equipment. 
treated in ER departments, and so about almost 300,000 a year. 61% um, of those happen on public playground equipment. And there's a big report out there. Sorry, I didn't update my date. Uh, that should not be 01 to 08. It should be between 09 and 14. That was published in 16. I have it updated here. Of these incidents treated by ER departments, 63% were equipment related, either breakage, poor design, or assembly, and 17% falls to the surface. So it kind of goes to show you that um, you know, if something breaks, there could be a fall. That might have been in that 63%. Uh, and of course, then the 17% falls to the surface. Unfortunately, there were 34 deaths associated. Average age seven, median age five, typically hangings as asphyxiations, but eight were the result of head or neck injuries. Um, the report didn't have the details that said, or the, at least where the statistics were published, they didn't have the details of it, but um, we assume that perhaps they were falls to the surface or falls onto other equipment uh, if it was a head or neck injury. Moving on to us, what is a safe playground? What makes a safe playground? Uh, they conform with the CPSC and ASTM. There are regular inspections and maintenance, whether they be um, daily spot checks if you're at a school or weekly if you're at a public park, maybe somebody will go around and look at it at least weekly at, at minimum would be high frequency. Low frequency might be a yearly check on this, that, or the other. Uh, or fall test or something like that, drop test. Of course, you have to have training, appropriate training for your maintenance personnel to know what to look for, what to watch for, what to check, et cetera. Uh, maybe you have monitors at your school or something that would be able to take a look, see. And anybody else at, uh, you know, uh, residents or something like that may report something to you. Uh, and of course, supervision. Uh, is a very important part of a safe playground. Obviously in public parks, not always possible or feasible to have supervision. So let's jump to the part about safety surfacing and why we're here today. So what is the point of safety surfacing? Safety surfacing reduces the risk of head injuries and it doesn't eliminate it, it will reduce the risk of it during a fall to the surface. It also does not protect against broken, uh, broken bones. Um, anybody walking across the surface may trip and fall. The natural reaction is put your hands out and anybody could fall and break a wrist. However, we can heal a broken bone. But the, the important part is up here, the brain is much more difficult to hear, uh, heal. And of course, all of this awareness has come out lately with concussion, concussion protocols in sports and other things like that, that um, we've learned so much through the years that we are realizing, of course, that that's very important. Um, and we want to provide a, a kids with a safe environment where they can take risks. And taking risks is part of learning. For example, my three-year-old may look a, a little more timidly at something that our five-year-old will just run over and start climbing up and sliding down. Um, she is learning her limits. He has learned his limits. And you can see those differences as they develop through the years, which is unique and interesting to look at from a, um, you know, this side of things once you get into the play industry. And of course, uh, safety surfacing, you would have 
something that has been tested and certified. There are a couple of certifications that are out there. Um, there's uh, a lab that will do tests or there are multiple labs that will do these drop tests. And above and beyond that, there is IPEMA certification that can occur with the play equipment or play surfaces. Um, IPEMA certification is International Playground Equipment Manufacturers Association. And you can go to IPEMA.org and check out. Uh, there's a, a search feature there where you can actually search for different vendors and their certificates and their fall heights and surfacing thicknesses, et cetera, et cetera, and verify that this product that you got was actually uh, certified, drop tested, and so on and so forth. Um, you can purchase from somebody that has a basic lab test that has not been IPEMA certified, but the folks that go through the IPEMA certification process, it's a bit more expensive. It's a bit more, um, uh, I guess, well-known. And so uh, we usually look towards somebody that has an IPEMA certification um, when we are representing different brands. Uh, again, there's a number of them that are out there, but uh, those are the steps that, for example, maybe a local mulch yard might not go through. They'll get a drop test done somewhere, but they won't go through the whole, uh, jumping through all the hoops to do the IPEMA certification. So there are a number of different safety surface options that are out there, and this list may not be um, fully uh, encompassing, but generally the ones that are out there are the engineered wood fiber or known as playground mulch. Um, there's rubber mulch, and that may include things that are um, either recycled and um, uh, there would be tires that are processed and uh, chopped into small little pieces of mulch. And there's also some brands that are out there that are doing um, uh, shoes actually, like leather and, and uh, not leather, sorry, um, uh, foam rubber, et cetera, from like soles of shoes or post-production uh, waste that is being chopped up into small pieces. Uh, that is a, a little bit lesser product, but it's out there. Um, so that would fit into the others. Um, then there's the unitary or solid surfaces like poured in place rubber or bonded mulch or bonded rubber uh, as it might go by. There are artificial turf systems that are out there that utilize a padding layer and then kind of a roll of the uh, carpet that's uh, outdoor grass. And then of course there are the pre-produced and uh, formed rubber tiles that are out there. And again, there are a number of different systems out there. So this may not be totally encompassing of everything. Um, there are some rubber mats that are out there that do systems um, that usually, it's interesting, they, they allow grass to grow up through them. Uh, they do have test data and certifications, um, but it's a very specific system. Um, but yeah, there's, like I said, a, a number of others that may not be listed here. These are the more common or most common ones that we see though. So engineered wood fiber. Uh, this one is the one that a lot of folks use that is um, very economical and allows usually to add more uh, engineered or design play equipment. Um, as you'll see on the top right, that 
it shows up on a truck, it's loose, it's a mountain that shows up in your parking lot nearby or something like that, and it's your job to get it in. Uh, and then there's the system shown on the right of the uh, soil, layer of drain fabric, layer of stone with a drain, layer of fabric, and then the layer of loose fill mulch. I wanna show a video real quick, and I'm gonna to try to do this. Um, I hope I can get my screen switched. If I can figure this out. Sometimes you just have to stop share and then reshare. Okay, then that's what I'll do. Yeah, if I can figure that out. I was in technology, you would think that I would know how to do this. Controls. Here we go. Does everybody see the green screen there? You're good. So this is from a manufacturer of uh, engineered wood fiber. And it's a very telling video of how the system works. Everybody's seen this with the uh, puddles under the swings or, you know, in the area of over in the corner or the low spot where it's just, you know, sopping wet and water is just stuck. Well, they did a pretty cool video here of dumping a bucket of water into um, their engineered wood fiber and have a drain down in the bottom right corners of these tubs. And as it says here, the container on the left uh, demonstrates there's a system that has um, a foam padding layer as its drainage layer. And then of course the uh, engineered wood fiber above and the water, it's hard to see, is pouring right out of that drain. The one in the middle just shows the, um, the stone layer underneath for drainage. And that also is draining water right out. The one on the right represents uh, some other installations that are fairly, unfortunately, fairly typical where somebody will dig down and just install their surfacing over top of soil, or they might put a layer of fabric down first, at least to separate the dissimilar materials. Um, as you can see, the water is moving through the drain layer of this one with the padding. And it really is pretty indicative to show that the water has to get out and how it gets out. Uh, it's pretty important because obviously that's an organic material. And then skipping further ahead to the one that has a stone, again, water is pouring out fairly well and stops because it drained out. But the one over here on the right is the one that's holding water and results in what you see with something like this with water underneath it. There's nowhere for the water to go. So it starts to build up and fill up in the area. You've basically created a pool. And poor drainage can do a lot of bad things to um, engineer wood fiber, like reducing the fall protection, freezing in the winter time, uh, just breaking down early, et cetera. So that was a, a very telling video, I think, of the surfacing. Uh, typically, engineered wood fiber is the most affordable option. Um, I would say here in Pennsylvania, somewhere between two and five dollars delivered or delivered and installed in that range somewhere. Um, generally, it's an easy installation. Uh, you can have volunteers do it even if you were doing a build like that, uh, where somebody would be able to wheelbarrow it in. There's an asterisk on there. I'll come back to that in a moment. It's porous. So with concerns for stormwater 
Um, that's something that needs to be considered in a lot of places now. It is generally readily available. Um, it's one of the best performers in terms of fall protections. Um, typically, it's certified at 12 inches thick for a 12 foot fall height, but the performance level of the head impact or sorry, head injury criteria score or the GMAX is usually lower than most. Um, it's the, one of the coolest because of the inherent properties of wood itself. So on a hot summer day, it doesn't get quite as hot as a synthetic material. And it's ADA compliant, again, with an asterisk there. And I'll come back to that in a moment. Um, the cons are, of course, it requires constant upkeep. Literal mountain of material shows up in your parking lot. Uh, a full semi-truck is 100 yards of mulch. And uh, if you have a small skid loader, that's 100 trips in and out. You can mess up your, uh, your grass pretty badly doing that. Um, on the flip side, the easy installation, you know, we can blow it in sometimes if that service is of interest. Um, I have in there two readily available. Um, what I mean by that is that there may be the, the tree and mulch landscape yard down the road that says, hey, we have playground mulch. Well, true, you might have playground mulch, but does it really comply with all the safety standards? Uh, there's uh, rules about material that's used to produce it, such as not using pallets and other pressure treated lumber, et cetera, that might have chemicals in them. Uh, also that might have nails or staples or other pieces of metal in them. Um, poison ivy, poison oak, probably not a good idea to use something like that. Uh, and then also there's a spec in the ASTM guide to producing it that says that you cannot have a piece that as I believe it's 20 times longer than its width. So 20 times longer than a certain size. Basically, we don't want somebody to fall, put their hands out, and then have a piece that's sharp go up through a hand or through a finger or something like that. Um, there's a joke, there's a collective around this area that's a bunch of schools that band together and do a bulk purchase, and they, they demand a sample of mulch to certify that it's appropriate. And they always joke that the nicest bucket of material comes out of the yard to provide that sample. And then on the backside, whatever shows up is, you know, hit or miss sort of looking or darker color or whatever it might be. So, yeah, sort of buyer beware in some cases that mulch can be too readily available for certified playground mulch. Um, it requires drainage considerations for its longest life. So, for example, in the uh, video that was shown, if you dig down, you're creating a pool, basically. And in an area like Pennsylvania that has rain and, and things like that, you know, we're going to um, either see that float away and up and out. I've heard of that one happening recently um, at an HOA nearby here. Um, or you might have it just sit in a pool of water and the soil below doesn't drain well, so just compost from down below. Uh, so it's as mentioned there, it's an organic material. And sorry, I have to hide my thumbnail video. Here we go. Um, ADA compliant with a question mark. Um, so one of our folks that um, one of our folks that uh, jumped in on the uh, prior to our our video call. Thank you very much for your note. Um, 
there is a school district in Iowa. I want to say it was like Iowa City School District. Uh, basically, there was a, a group of parents that urged the schools, there are 12 schools, not to move ahead with engineered wood fiber installation at their playgrounds. They did, and as a result, they asked the Department of Justice to get involved. And long story short, I'm going to skip to the next slide here. Um, they did a test with this device here. It's a rotational penetrometer, I believe is what the device is called. And sorry, I don't have my, my notes shown here on the screen, but uh, that device is used to show the torque values that are required for somebody to move through that engineered wood fiber that's in a mobility device. Uh, what that does is it, it, it's either torque required to move, physically move forward or for them to rotate in their uh, mobility device and make sure that that does not sink down into the mulch too far and cause issues for getting around. Well, DOJ got involved and it's almost nearly as soon as they put the engineered wood fiber in, it was tested with that device and it failed. Uh, there was a big lawsuit which resulted in the schools having to redo all of their playgrounds according to federal ADA law. Um, I'll play devil's advocate. It, when installed correctly, it does tamp down very nicely, but I, I am usually wary at, um, uh, sometimes when it's just piled into the area, uh, there are disclaimers that say, well, the right way to do this or the proper way to install it is to use some means of mechanical compaction. What I mean by that is you put in a layer of mulch and you'll run a plate compactor across it to smooth it and tamp it. And then you'll put another six inch layer down and you'll smooth it and compact it and build it up so it's immediately compacted and compressed so that there's not this uh, issue as much. Um, on the flip side of that then is, you know, we meet with parents that have uh, children that have mobility devices or other needs like that. And they say, you know, are you joking me? You think that this is appropriate for my kid to do it? And yeah, it, it definitely is something where you have to consider your options here. Are, um, yes, it is certified, but it requires a lot more maintenance to maintain that level of appropriateness. Um, so that was a big, big, big thing there. And I also had heard from our wonderful viewer in another state that um, uh, Massachusetts is considering not installing engineered wood fiber in any new playgrounds at all because of the reason I mentioned about the installation. Um, the, the proper way to install and to maintain it is to, and I skipped this step, sorry, you're supposed to wet it when you compact it. And they're saying that basically the four steps of maintenance is raking into place, filling in any voids, wetting and compacting. And they're saying people are not doing the wetting and, and recompaction. So it's not appropriate whatsoever. So uh, that's something I've heard. I've not been able to touch base with my counterpart that is based up in the Boston or the Massachusetts area um, to get any clarification on that. But again, it, all it takes is like, it, in Iowa is one parent or somebody like that to say, hey, this isn't cool, this is not appropriate, it's not being maintained, and you know, opens a whole can of worms. Um, that goes also to my uh, point about drop testing that I'll bring up a little bit later is about 
they test these in a lab situation. So of course you get the nice lab test, no weather, stuff like that. And so it's going to pass these tests or it's made to pass these tests, maybe very specifically in labs, but not out in the real world when there's maintenance that's required periodically like any of these other loose fill materials. So a lot of information to consider before you make your purchase of play equipment and uh, loose fill surfacing. The next loose fill is rubber mulch. Uh, you can see the rubber mulch in the play area on the left. And you can see how it sometimes shows up in these 2000 pound bags on the right that are about four foot by four foot square by five foot tall. Uh, those things are massive and it's sometimes hard to get a size and scale of them unless you see a photo. So uh, this was a project that I did uh, nearby in I think Maniunk area a couple of years ago. And it, it's funny to see those bags that big. Um, one of the issues that I'll point out while I have the photo up is you can see the amount of mulch that's spread outside of the play area with that rubber mulch. And I'll come over to that in a moment. Some of the pros are it's fairly affordable, all things considered, um, three to five, six, six, seven bucks, something like that, maybe at the most to, to buy it and install it in some cases. Uh, it comes in a bunch of different colors, uh, generally easy installation. You put that bag on the front of your skid loaders, uh, uh, forks or something like that. You can take it out, hang it up, you can cut it open and let it spread and then rake it in place. Uh, it's porous, of course. Uh, it's one of the best performers in terms of fall height and thickness requirements. Uh, rubber mulch is um, six inches thick approximately, and that will attenuate up to, I think it's a 16-foot fall height rating. And there's infrequent refilling that might be required. Sort of like, uh, I'll, I'll come back to that with an asterisk. Um, it does require a lot of upkeep in the cases that I've seen it in terms of spreading. Uh, it, it sort of kicks and moves almost easier than um, regular mulch does, EWF. Uh, you need literal tons of material for installation. So that can be tricky, especially when you're trying to get it in somewhere. Uh, you can purchase it on pallets in 40 pound bags, but that's a lot of bags to carry into a play area. Um, in my experience as well, sometimes this inorganic material can draw some negative attention. Parents are concerned with the use of rubber in some cases, and they've requested um, uh, chemical uh, MSDS sheets, et cetera, to sort of assuage concerns about potential um, hazards of breathing in the dust or um, something like that. It is vulcanized rubber, which is one of the most inert substances, but uh, there's been a lot of press about that in the past. Um, ADA compliant with a question mark. Uh, I believe that some manufacturers claim it is ADA compliant. I don't, um, that's another one of those with the loose fill where it's, I would say hard to verify that. And I would be willing to say that if you got one of those rotational penetrometers, it would not pass at all. Um, but I know that they published that it's ADA compliant. Um, I'll leave that there as a uh, do your research before you make your own judgments there. Um, it can have some of the steel cable content from
from tires. Uh, it's published to be in a lot of cases 99.9 or 0.99% free of steel, though almost every time I visited a playground that I did with an HOA, they had somebody say, here's another piece with a piece of steel cable sticking out of it. It's dirty. Uh, from the users that have purchased it, uh, schools have said that the kids put their feet up on the uh, building, on the walls, and they, they have it all over their floors and it gets everywhere. And from our experience with our playground testers, they come home and their hands are definitely a uh, different color from the, the dust that comes off of that rubber. And it definitely heats up in the summer sun as well. So there are definite pros and cons to the rubber mulch. Um, people that buy it, they love it. They don't have to top it up. Um, but the people that, that I think there are more cons in some cases than otherwise. So again, do your research before you purchase, make sure you know what you're purchasing. And Kevin, have you found, uh, is it hypoallergenic or are there concerns about, you know, rubber allergies and things like that? It, it's more about actually, um, if you recall, there was, uh, um, one of those, uh, network TV programs that came out and, and they, Found that children were uh, consuming accidentally some of the infill from sports fields, which was rubber infill. So separate animal on its own, but they were concerned about cancer um, from you know breathing in or, or exposure to the dust coming off of the vulcanized rubber is what it was. So uh, we had received in some cases some um, parental uh, questions about. How do you verify it's safe? And I know some of the manufacturers have come out and you know, proven on their own with their documentation about what their material is. Uh, like I said, it's vulcanized rubber, which I think it's a 010 on the MSDS, which is um, basically nothing um, chemical uh, or acidic, whatever, uh, slightly flammable. And yes, uh, I don't remember the other one. I apologize. but. Yeah, very inert, basically, type of material. And, and I think they've said, like, you'd have to live, like, coated in that material for a long period of time to have any sort of leaching effects from the material into your skin, et cetera. So those were sort of the questions that uh, we received about that. And like I said, it's on one of the manufacturer's websites about the FAQ section, how do we know it's safe? So it has been an issue in the past. Uh, does that answer your question, PK? Yeah, thank you. Okay. Uh, I'll move on to cord in place rubber um, without being too, I guess, biased. It's my favorite of all of the options. Um, as you can see, you can do multiple colors. Um, there's the material showing up in the back of a tractor trailer. Uh, I accidentally blocked up. Um, Gerard Avenue and the streetcars in Philadelphia with this project with a literal mountain of rubber showing up there. But, um, and you can see it being installed on the right. Uh, the one in the back of the truck there, that was on, like I said, Gerard Avenue in Philadelphia. And that project was actually up on a rooftop, a uh, fifth story rooftop deck in Philadelphia. Um, so that's where it has positives as well. Is, uh, where you can put it is almost anywhere. But um, some of the pros are there's minimal maintenance to it. 
it is porous. It actually will drain through. There's a spec as to how much water it'll drain. And it's a very good performer in terms of fall height and drop tests. It can be patched. Um, I think even Amazon has patch kits now. Um, and I'm qualified to do it for our projects here in Pennsylvania. I've done some fixes. Uh, it can conform to your play area. And by what I, uh, what I mean there is you can have an odd oval shape and it can be poured to any uh, shape. It's not limited to straight edges, et cetera. And further, it can have some um, elevation changes to it. Uh, we've done some mounds, play mounds, where kids can go up to the top and roll down or something like that. Uh, so it, it's, it's a good material in that regard. Uh, it's definitely ADA compliant. You can have a lot of different colorful options to it. And as I mentioned, hill and mound installation is okay with some asterisks on those. Uh, some of the cons, though, about port-in-place rubber, it's a large upfront investment. Um, that's the tough part about it. I guess jumping back over the, the pros is it's a, a lifespan, which I have as a plus and a minus here. Uh, it's somewhat delicate. Uh, in some areas, we've seen where um, you may want to consider raising your swings up just a little bit to prevent kids constantly abrading the surface. Uh, it, um, you don't want to put tables on it or anything heavy where it could sit and then compress it. It's like a sponge and it can rip it apart, basically. Um, water is the enemy of this as well. Uh, literal tons of material show up for installation, but I think that's going to be a, uh, a recurring theme here with any of the stuff that we do. The lifespan, 10 to 15 years, and that's going to be depending on the supplier. What I mean there is um, there are companies out there that'll be happy to take your money, do your project, and then when it falls apart after a couple of years, hey, sorry, I can't do anything for you, is kind of what happens. Uh, it, it's a very sort of scuzzy business uh, in some cases where there are unscrupulous characters, and uh, those are the ones that are not going to be the IPEMA certified uh, suppliers. So I've had a few of those experiences in business myself. So. I can share those after or offline, but um, another thing is performance can drop over the years. Uh, obviously out in the sun and the heat and the cold and the rain and the snow and ice and all those things, uh, the, the rubber material, the base will slowly uh, lose its resilience. So you have to watch that drop over the years. It definitely heats up in the summer sun. We do a lot of light colors, but it still heats up just the nature of the way that rubber is. And, and if you touch it, it pushes that heat back out of it easily. Uh, specific heat, I think, is the, uh, the official term from whatever that was, physics or uh, chemistry. Um, asphalt. Uh, asphalt base is no good against poured in place rubber. This goes to sort of with the second or the last line item about shrinkage and expansion. Um, if you use asphalt as a curb or an edge, or even if you pour it over top, we've had a lot of experiences or seen this where it will shrink. And as it shrinks, it will rip asphalt completely apart. I mean, just where you'll see chunks of asphalt stuck to the bottom where somebody beveled a surface down to it, existing asphalt, or alternatively used it and bonded to it. Uh, where it'll actually take that asphalt and it'll either rip it apart right here and the, you'll see all the edge comes apart. Or uh, I've heard from a supplier where they had it where 
the, the rubber would shrink in the cold and foot into the sidewalk, it would actually make a crack as it shrunk and then expanded back in the summertime. This sort of depends on the supplier installer as well. Um, the less dense that it is, if an installer uses less material per square foot, you're going to find that it has more uh, shrink and expansion. Um, same with the amount of adhesive and glue that they use. The less glue they use, the same deal it can uh, shrink and expand uh, significantly as well as going up to that lifespan thing. Some people skimp on the glue because that's the expensive part of the whole proposition. And when you use less glue, it just tends to crumb apart or fall apart over the years. And once you have that, there's really nothing you can do about it. And again, unfortunately, you paid your bill and then they say, well, nothing we can do, see you later. Um, I'll move on to rubber tiles. Rubber tiles are pretty neat. Uh, they are pre-produced and then shipped to you. They go together sort of like a puzzle paste in some cases. Some have, um, they don't interlock. You can see those in the top right. They do interlock all the way around. You can do neat things like checkerboards, or you can do just as simple little designs as shown in the, uh, in the photo there as well. But they do have some pros, minimal maintenance, um, just blow it off, uh, light, light, light pressure wash, something like that. They're porous. Uh, it's a good performer. It'll, uh, I think there are some options that are up to 10 or 12 feet for fall height. Uh, it can be replaced in two foot sections. Uh, the ones that are interlocking are maybe a little bit more difficult to get apart, but they can be replaced. So under a swing or something like that, or at the end of the slide, if it gets worn significantly, it can get replaced. They're ADA compliant. They're colorful options, whether they be uh, painted on top or where they actually use the granules and molded into them that have uh, color in them. And in some cases, volunteers could install a tile. Um, definitely not an important place. There's a very specific process and procedure and it's messy, but hey, if you can put together a puzzle and figure out how to put it around your playground posts with a little bit of guidance, sure. You know, you could definitely do something like that. Um, the cons are, again, upfront investment. It's pretty expensive per square foot. There is literal tons of material for installation that come on pallets. Um, Typically, you're constrained to square or straight edges unless you start to waste material. And that depends on the tile, the, the style of tile. Uh, the ones with the interlocks, sometimes you have an interlock this way on two sides and an interlock uh, this way on the other two sides. And once you start to cut things, you have to think about where you're putting it. Others that don't have the interlocks, it's a little bit easier with the waste, but you still will probably have waste if you're trying to do you know, circular round edges or whatever, probably make a few mistakes that way uh, and have to recut or otherwise. Lifespan 10, 15 years, something like that. Again, depends on the supplier, um, but usually tiles are produced in a uh, factory setting. So they, they tend to be very reliable and you know, across the board um, do pretty well. Uh, again, their performance will drop over the years, just like the rubber, um, they heat up in the sun. And then with tiles, you tend to get gaps where they'll pull apart and shrink in the winter and then push together and cup in the summertime. So uh, that's sort of the inherent nature of that material. It's gonna perform as individuals in a lot of cases rather than an entire system.
and then artificial turf systems. Uh, as you can see, there's it's basically carpet laid over a foam pad, much like in your home, except in this case, we can't take the furniture out before we do the installation. So that's where it becomes a little bit more tricky with a 15 foot wide piece of carpet. There are a lot of experts that do this and they come in and they put it in and it looks great afterward. Again, minimal maintenance for a solid surface. Um, some of these turf systems have infill, so you have to watch for the infill a little bit and the blades of grass can tend to um, lay down flat unless they get brushed back up against the grain to stand up. It is a porous system. Some are different than others. Some are drained straight through. Others are perforated every couple of feet um, in a big grid pattern to make them porous and drain through. Uh, there are some systems that may still be out there that do a sheet flow drainage, but uh, don't quote me on that one. Um, it can be patched in little sections or squares. They can be cut out, put a new seam underneath it and glue the new section in. Uh, it is ADA compliant and it has a nice natural look to it. Uh, that's kind of the nice part about it. Um, it can be a large upfront investment. It can be somewhat delicate in some cases, um, but uh, sort of depends on the supplier and there's a lifespan. Um, again, with turf, a lot of it is produced here in the United States down in Georgia. It is, there are many different qualities all the way through. Some uh, have tendency at the lower end, you get what you pay for sort of where the blades of grass may pull out or come out. Um, whereas then you can get the super luxury version that has all the different colors and things like that. So that's uh, something to look for. Uh, performance can drop over the years with that pad breaking down a little bit. It definitely heats up in the summer sun. Um, there, in some cases, have to be edges for nailers or boards upon which the carpet can be attached around the perimeter. Um, there are some systems now that, uh, that we're starting to do that are poured rubber for the base. And then we adhere turf over the top of it, turf top. Kind of a neat product with a, you know, it's a combination of the two systems. Um, so that can be, a, I guess, a positive, or we can take that off the con in some cases. There can be some waste. Uh, of course, these come in rolls of 15 feet wide. And there's a grain to the grass, kind of like uh, you see on the nice baseball fields or golf courses. You know, some people do put them in the opposing directions, and then you see those nice stripes. But um, in a lot of cases, they're all installed or they're installed for uh, all the same direction. So then you have to start thinking about, well, if it's cut over here on this side, I have to take this piece and it has to face this direction. And how do I maximize that uh, cut and end up with the smallest amount of cuts left? So that can be challenging. Usually the factory folks that figure it out, they're pretty good at figuring that out. So you minimize your waste. But you know, you're still paying a dollar to three dollars a square foot for that waste. Um, and then, of course, the infill can be sort of a, a, a good or a bad, uh, depending on how you look at it. It, it is a system. Uh, the infill can be sand, it can be loose, and then it can wash or run out, etc. So just those are some of the things about the turf that uh, are the pros and cons. But Basically, it comes down to, you know, what is your budget support? 
Uh, there's no right or wrong answer, but do your research. Go see other projects around the area. Talk to the vendors first. Find out where they've worked. Go see their stuff that's not just new. See the old stuff, the stuff that's uh, out there that's high traffic. See how it's holding up because, you know, if you get a nice brand new shiny part, see how it holds up uh, at somebody else's first if you can and go see it. See what that surface looks like. Are there crumbs? Is there anything loose on the poured rubber? Is there grass that has those blades coming up? Um, you know, anything like that, uh, it's always good to do your research. Post installation, what do we want to do? Well, one thing that has been required of me and in, in a city up here in Pennsylvania is um, baseline testing. Basically, right after we put it in, they want us to provide a report from a uh, testing agency that does these drop tests. Um, I hire somebody who is completely independent and only does testing. They don't work for a surfacing company. They don't own a surfacing company. They're not affiliated with me. They're not affiliated with anybody at all except for just their own independent test agency and they do these drop tests. Uh, there are companies that'll say, yeah, sure, we'll hire a um, somebody to come out and do it. And then I, I know actually up here in Pennsylvania, there's somebody who owns both a surfacing company and a drop test company. To me, that's a little bit of a conflict of interest. And at our firm, for example, we purchase the surfacing and resell it to our clients. I want to know that I'm buying something that passes these tests as well. So that's why it's highly recommended to get a third party, completely independent tester. I think that's probably the best practice. What you are doing there is you're verifying that you actually are getting the bill of goods that you are sold. Um, so in that case, you know, you have somewhere to go from you say, hey, I got this on this date and you keep it with your playground records or whatever you might've put in at that time and say, okay, yep, we have this, we have that, we have the other, we have our maintenance records, we have our logs. And of course, then you can go and do some ongoing inspections. Now, let's say it's um, uh, mulch, uh, playground mulch or EWF. Um, basically, you're gonna do your raking on a regular schedule, whether that be every week, every other week, something like that, depends on how often it needs to be done. Uh, for poured in place or artificial turf or rubber tiles, you may blow it off if it's by trees. A light pressure washer, again, check with your manufacturer to see what's appropriate for use. See if there are any spots that are coming up at, or somebody picked at it or somebody you know, cut it or who knows what. That's where those uh, little weekly, just quick glances or walk around that surface makes a lot of sense. And then on the backside too is the annual test. You wanna be, be sure that year over year, your surfacing is, is protecting appropriately according to what the fall height requirements are for the piece of equipment. So in that regard, if somebody has an issue or, or we have an incident, you can pull out those records and say, hey, last time we checked it, we did it right next to the net climber shown here. And we did it within that six foot fall zone in this place, that place, the other place, and the other place. And we verified that the uh, head impact or head injury criteria score was less than 200. And the GMAX test was less than 1000. Uh, you may wanna remember those numbers. Hick less than 200 and GMAX less than 1000. 
you may be asked that question in a little bit uh, as of at the end of this, but um, yeah, head injury criteria score and the GMAX, uh, I guess brief history there, they were developed from the automobile industry. And you remember the crash test dummies from the commercials that they had over the years, maybe a, a 90s band if you're uh, into music, but um, the crash test dummies um, would have the, the sensors in their heads and be pulled and put into a crash and that would measure the Gs and the loading in the, the brain uh, or you know in the head um, according to how severe an impact was. Uh, those values were found to have a low percent chance of a severe brain injury. And so that's why we use those numbers. One other consideration you may want to do when you uh, jumping back to the pre-installation is buy something that exceeds the fall height rating significantly so that over the years, if things change negatively slightly, you might put a little bit of extra money in up front, but then have a few more years on the backside where you don't have to do your replacement because they continue to pass these tests for the HIC and the GMAX tests. So that's where you keep your annual test uh, results. Again, just in case anything were to happen, you can verify that the surface was tested on this date by this person. Here was the ambient temperature and here was the uh, result and it passed so that you can verify that you know, you're not negligent for not providing the proper surfacing or something like that. So I do, uh, in my maintenance, you can see the pieces of mulch down in, um, that are significantly long and it definitely looks like uh, something bad was put in there originally or something like that that you know, shouldn't have been there. Again, this is the sort of issues that you're looking for. Uh, this you need to have patched, especially at the end of a slide where there's chance of somebody falling and hitting their heads. Um, this, of course, is ADA issues right here. Um, these gaps and these tiles. Um, but these, sadly, these are the things that are out there in the world now. Something like this. This is not an appropriate playground surface. It doesn't conform with the requirements for the fall zones. Good effort, but yeah, not really. And then the last thing is the, um, the in Philadelphia, I saw this. Uh, I think that the housing authority property is torn down at this point, but somebody had a great idea and said, hey, we're doing some paving over here and there's a hole in that poured in place rubber at the bottom of that slide. Let's go fill it in. That's actually asphalt at the bottom of that slide. Kind of a little crazy, but um, yeah, again, it's out there in the world. These are the types of things that you know we want to avoid because that's major if somebody would to get hurt there. Who would you call if you had an issue with your play surface or wanted to get more information? You can call us, Recreation Resource. We work with a number of different suppliers and manufacturers and be happy to talk through some of these uh, questions or issues you might be having. Our general mailbox or me directly, Kevin Yu, recreation-resource.com.
Go to your original manufacturer or supplier. You should be able to talk to them freely and say, hey, I bought this from you. I don't remember what date or I do remember what date. Can you give me a certification uh, or a certificate from the original date of certification of, of uh, installation? And they'd be able to produce that for you. They should be able to produce that for you. IPEMA, you can generate those yourself as well. In some cases, um, there's one EWF supplier who actually had somebody generate a certificate and provide it to an insurance company. The insurance company said, hey, can you verify this purchase was made on this date? And actually, it wasn't by them. They have no record of it whatsoever. Somebody had falsified information. So that, that's a little crazy, but that's happened before. But um, the other place to look, CPSC publication 325. Uh, your federal tax dollars will provide you with free copies of that publication. Email info at cpsc.gov. Dear sir or ma'am, I would like to request shipment of X number of CPSC publication number 325. Give them your address and they'll say, hey, copies of this are in the mail and you'll get them in a couple weeks free. So utilize that. It's also a PDF if you want to save some trees. Uh, ASTM 1292, that is the official standard. Um, you do have to purchase that, but if you speak with your original manufacturer or supplier, they might be able to help you with specific pieces of ASTM standards. And of course, the Department of Justice uh, has a access, uh, ADA standard for accessible design, and there are a few um, like access board websites that are out there that talk about uh, different surfaces and slopes and all the things associated with ADA. So of course, the keys to a safe playground, we know are design, the installation, the maintenance and the supervision, but um, it's the children's job to learn from taking risks, but it's our job to eliminate or reduce significantly those hazards. Are there any questions for me at this point? I see there's a screen up here, BK. You may have to help me with the chat function. That's all right. There was um, some comments more than questions. Sure. Um, <clears throat> One, one was a comment that uh, they're having problems with seams on yeah. their their kind of uh, their surfacing. And okay. so is that a common problem with port in place and or the various, you know, you mentioned that there is some cupping and things like that along with the, mm -hmm. the pads. And so is that kind of one benefit over loose fill over a, you know, a, a uniform fill and the fact that over time, things do break down and start kind of creating trip hazards, or um, is that just kind of a, a, a fact that you take into, what, like one of the decision factors in a sense? Right, uh, seams and turf, that one's a tricky one. Um, you should be able to speak with your original manufacturer or original sales rep or whoever it might be and get them to uh, come out and service that. It depends on, you know, their policies and warranties and things like that. But um, I do know that as turf ages and the the, the, um, the blades sort of map down a bit, that you start to see the turf seams a little bit more. Um, that's sort of the nature of the product. Um, if you broom against the grain to get those to stand back up, there's a chance that you can make it disappear a little bit, but not really go away. Um, you'll probably still see that line running. It's sort of the nature of the product itself because you are putting down 
strips of carpet. And in some cases, like in your home or something like that, if you have a room that has a seam, sometimes even those carpet seams can be seen. So that's sort of, unfortunately, the nature of the product in some cases. Now, of course, if it's very, very visible, uh, that could be an installation issue or shifting or moving or coming unglued or whatever it might be. So it's definitely worth having somebody either look at or um, you know talk to you about it or if you have any material like the, the glue left over and the seam tape, you know, perhaps peel it apart, put a better layer in there to join it back together, something like that. But talk to your original manufacturer, have somebody come out and take a look at it. That's the thing that I can recommend for that. That's great. And, and just to kind of interject that I see we're, we're cutting, uh, hitting our time here. We want to answer the questions, but if you do need to drop out, folks, I understand I will be sharing this recording with everyone, um, as well as if you have signed up for CEU credits, you will be receiving an email uh, with that information. But we'll, we'll make sure we spend the time to answer the questions that have been coming in here. Um, there was a question, do you recommend um, things like extra padded mats under swings or any of those kind of uh, base of slides and those kind of areas. Right. Um, is there a, does that become a hazard on a port in place or is that something that you can still have there or what are some of those recommendations? Yeah, so uh, first, yeah, Mike, thank you very much for your point about the district in Iowa about going over to port in place. So thank you very much. Um, for the recommendation about mats under swings on EWF playgrounds. Uh, yeah, because basically as soon as somebody kicks out a trough or whatever you want to call it underneath the swings, the loose fill surface becomes less than its certified fall height. And if, you know, if a kid were to fall from the, surf, uh, the, the height down onto that surface right there, you are now less than compliant. So the rubber mats are good to keep on the top of the surface. And uh, so that's the wear area. However, I've also seen the, where people recommend putting it down at, um, all the way down so that nobody can get through the soil. So that's sort of a, a you know, recommendation that um, you should figure out the right way for your playground to be or whatever it might be. Um, a resource for installation of wood mulch over ground surface without any type of prep. So there are a lot of folks that do um, installation of wood mulch in borders that are above the ground. The theory there is that at least then that area can't hold water very easily. And so, um, yeah, a couple of things you can do there is either put down a small layer of stone for uh, fabric then stone then fabric. You always want to separate your dissimilar materials with uh, geotextile fabric or landscape fabric, whatever you want to call it. What that'll do is prevent grass growing up from below. It'll keep the mulch uh, out of the stone, the stone out of the mulch, and it also keeps that clean stone layer uh, clean so that it remains porous and water can get out through it. So that would be a good way to go. Uh, alternatively, there are some manufacturers that will, instead of stone, if stone is tricky, um, you can get these four foot by six foot pieces of, it looks like carpet pad that's about this thick or so, and you can put that down first in a big pattern around the entire area and cover it up. That foam is the same as what you would use under your uh, artificial turf. I can go back to the photo here on the right side. Um, you can use this sort of material here on the right. And 
basically, if you put that in first, it provides a drainage layer to get the water down out of the mulch. That's something that we've done over asphalt, in fact, and the borders don't really contain the stone that well in some cases. So uh, in that case, it was a very good solution. Alternatively, if you're going to put it in an area that you have a hard time getting stone to, like up some stairs or in the city or who knows what, um, you could use something like that because I can carry one of those pads. I, I can't carry a wheelbarrow of stone or you know multiple tons of stone to a place that's difficult to get to. So a couple of different ways that you can do it. Um, and that would be my sort of, uh, not necessarily recommendation, but that would be a way to accomplish what you're asking. Uh, I have a question in a sense for folks that are, you know, you're looking at decision factors and things what would be a value of, if you're doing a new installation, we would really recommend this kind of surfacing versus what if you're doing a reinstall and you're not doing it all at once, but you're doing it more piecemeal kind of thing. What are some of those kind of decision factors that can help people? So doing things piecemeal, um, with our play manufacturer, we can do phased installs where we design a big structure and we only do part of it one year and then the rest the next year or something like that. In those cases, you would want to do like a loose fill because you can't dig through port in place. You can't dig through artificial turf, at least very easily, um, but especially port in place, you can't get a machine driven onto it to then drill holes through. You really have to protect it because it is a little more... Um, Fragile. With tiles, you can move some out of the way, but then you're doing it installed and uninstalled and installed, you know, that sort of thing. Um, same with turf, you'd be doing a peel back the carpet and then reinstalling. So, you know, you kind of have to watch what you're doing, I guess, to, for it to make sense. Um, but yeah, if you did a loose fill or you did pour it in place over to a certain area and then loose filled the rest, and then in the future you expanded the area, you know, that's a good way to go too. But yeah, try not to please don't think that we can do rubber and then do something through that later. That I've seen that too many times where people want to do that and it's not the right way, so. That's great. And as far as decision factors for faults, I mean, you're familiar with Pennsylvania and our climate and those kind of factors, but you know, what are some of the biggest variables that will help, aside from price, obviously, but what are some of the environmental factors that people should really take into account when they're making their final decisions? Um, the hot and cold and the humidity and the snow and the heat, and all the things that we have here make our area probably a very um, difficult area to maintain any sort of equipment or surfacing. Now, of course, you know, we, we have to feel for the folks in uh, Gulf of Mexico, Texas, um, Florida, with all the heat and humidity. Uh, I don't know how you folks stand it. If there are any of you out there, I can't. It's crazy. But um, those areas as well would be very difficult to um, maintain surfacing or the UV from the sun or anything like that. Uh, everything is going to have its pros and everything will have its cons. And truly, it's doing your research beforehand, I think, is what the most important thing is. I like to provide all those things like I showed before as a pro and a con. Hey, you're interested in this surface? Great. Let's know this about it. Let's know that about it. Let's know, you know why maybe you might not want it. Um, but let's do this as a research project and, and find the right solution. I'm not going to push you in one way or another 
I might gently nudge you to select something over something else based upon a conversation. But um, yeah, there's there's no right or wrong answer, I don't think, uh, no matter where you are. It's what fits you and your organization and your goals for maintenance the best. So sorry for the non-answer, but I hope that helps. No, that, that, that does help. And, and like you said, ask your manufacturer. And that's also what you want to do if you have questions after it is installed is when in doubt, go back to the manufacturer of your equipment and or your surfacing material. And that's where you're going to get the most, the best information, if you will, because it's not necessarily going to be the people that installed it. And it's not necessarily going to be the people that maybe sold it to you. It's the beginning manufacturer right. right right and the last thing would be um i don't know if i mentioned this during the presentation about um you know you asked about different parts of the country uh in the lab tests they do them at 30 degrees 72 degrees and 120 degrees so all of these surfaces are tested for a lot of different uh circumstances and environments and all those things um so you know it's not like one is going to perform better than another or something like that based on temperature or, you know, like I said, whatever environmental factors. So you know, just do your research, see what other folks have done. You froze up there, Kevin. Well, I want to thank everyone for participating today. I would like to thank Kevin for his exactly. expertise and sharing. Sorry, Kevin, you froze up there for a second. But I want to thank you for taking the time to share your expertise with us today. Um, I put my details in the chat box. Uh, please feel free, reach out to me if you have further questions on playground surfacing, playground maintenance, or any research topics that you're really digging into right now. The Institute is focusing holistically on park maintenance topics from infrastructure to staff management, to asset management, to uh, irrigation, you know? So we are here to support you. Uh, reach out, look at us up online, and um, we hope to invite you again for our next shop talk. We look forward to hosting you in the future. Thank you, everyone. Thanks.